Welcome to episode 19 of Lady Fiction, a podcast dedicated to writing women, which anchors in the America Zentrum Hamburg's podcast series called The Transatlanticist. I'm your host, Stephanie Schaefer, and I'm very happy to introduce my guest for today, a transatlantic author and artist and German-American, Nora Krug. Welcome, Nora. Thanks so much for having me. Before getting started, I'd like to introduce my guest uh, to our listeners here. Nora Krug is a German-American author and illustrator whose drawings and visual narratives have appeared in publications, including the New York Times and The Guardian, and in anthologies published by Houghton Mifflin, Harcourt, Simon & Schuster, and Chronicle Books. Nora is an associate professor of illustration at the Parsons School of Design in New York City, She received fellowships from the Fulbright, Guggenheim Memorial, the Paul Krasner and the Morris Sendak Foundations. Nora Krug was named Maura Gemmel Illustrator of the Year and 2019 Book Illustration Prize winner by the Victoria and Albert Museum. The books we will be talking about today have received many prestigious prizes. The visual memoir Belonging, Heimat, which was published with Scribner in 2018, was chosen as a best book of the year by the New York Times, The Guardian, NPR, and others, and won the 2018 National Book Critics Circle Award, among others. Her collaboration with historian Timothy Snyder, a graphic edition of On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century, which came out with 10 Speed Press in 2021, was named a best graphic novel of 2021 by the New York Times, a New York Times editor's choice, one of Germany's most beautiful books of 2022, and won a gold medal from the Society of Illustrators. On Tyranny has been recommended on the air by Rachel Maddow, as well as Margaret Atwood, author of the dystopian novel The Handmaid's Tale, which deeply, deeply impressed me, I could say that. In... Um, 2021, uh, the NS Dokumentationszentrum Munich included works from On Tyranny in its exhibit München und der Nationalsozialismus, Munich and National Socialism as intervention in the display. And as we're talking today, Nora Krug just returned from the Comic-Con Bergano and a larger book tour in Italy where On Tyranny has just been published in an Italian edition. And I'd like to start by asking you a little bit on uh, on tyranny. Why did you pick this book by Timothy Snyder and what influenced your decision to do an illustrated version? And um, I'm also super curious to hear uh, about your impression of its reception in Europe and in Italy. Thank you. Um, well, it was more that the book picked me in a way because um, Timothy Snyder approached me after having read my previous book, Belonging or Heimat, And he asked me if I wanted to do an illustrated edition of his already existing book on tyranny, which he published in 2017 as a reaction to Donald Trump having won the presidential elections. And he probably recognized that our goals were the same, although our approach to these subjects are very different, but that we both do work that confronts history in a critical way and also reminds us uh, what that you know of the fact that we have respond an individual responsibility to to resist basically and so he approached me about uh, illustrating it and i was um you know felt very flattered but also quite nervous but 
decided that it uh, would feel like a natural continuation of the work that I had been doing before on memory and war and responsibility. And that's why I agreed to doing it and mm -hmm. obviously haven't regretted it. Um, <laughs> and in terms of the, uh, the reception, it's been, it's been very interesting to see how it's been received in different countries because while the major focus of the book is on the area of research that Timothy Snyder focuses on, which is 20th century European history with a focus on Nazi Germany, but also the Soviet regime and Ukrainian history and Russian history. I believe that the strength of the book in general is that it resonates with people in any country because it is really about recognizing early roots of tyranny and uh, as I said earlier, individual responsibility, but not necessarily tied to any particular country. And in Italy, obviously, with both books, with my book Heimat uh, or Belonging and On Tyranny, um, whenever I do events there, um, the question of the lack of engagement on the part of the Italian public when it comes to um, its own fascist history, but also its colonial history, are big talking points usually during these uh, conversations. Mm -hmm. And I mean, right now, Italy is, is, a, is again, you know, taking a populist route in politics. So I would imagine that there must be lots of conversations in civil society around this. And uh, we've seen, a, you know, similar things happening in German politics. This is contemporary politics right now. But in the former East, you know, AfD representatives of the Alternative for Deutschland, the German um, populist party have come into power. So this is a very a super timely um book to be published and I was so intrigued to see that it's not such a scholarly book so you know Snyder has 20 lessons uh, looking back you know at the 20th century and, and from his academic expertise and he he articulates this into lessons and um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, how you how you went about illustrating the lessons what is the teaching component in your illustrated edition Yes. Well, I think as an illustrator, the key thing is always not to be too didactic and uh, not, not to be too educational in your approach, while, of course, you want to engage people and you want to make them think. So um, my goal was not to translate Timothy Snyder's texts one by one or one to one, uh, for instance, where he talks about the necessity of going to the streets to publicly show your political views or oppose, I don't know, existing political perceptions or, or, or um, regimes, I didn't want to show people in the streets demonstrating because it would have been too direct and also boring for a 124-page book. Um, <laughs> and I also, it was important to me to make people uh, who have already been familiar with, it, with the original edition and the non-illustrated edition of his book to surprise them, to make them read the text anew and maybe provide new, unusual, uh, unexpected entry points, also emotional entry points, because his book is obviously not a personal narrative. It's not a book about emotions, although obviously the text uh, on these subjects matters always evoke emotion. But uh, that's really, I, I saw that as my role as an illustrator to provide a poetic uh, additional um, level that could evoke emotions in the reader and could could uh, let them look at the text in a new way 
uh, and purely physically too. I mean, when you look at the images, I often uh, interrupted the text by inserting illustrations and having the text snake uh, around the illustration. So it's not uh, an illustrated book in the traditional sense where you have a lot of text and then you have one page that's illustrated. But I mm. felt almost a little bit like I hijacked his book in that I completely took it apart in a way and um, rearranged the text and the images to form a visual unity. And mm -hmm. in order to do that, I sometimes inserted illustrations in the middle of the text or bro broke up the text in various ways. And in a way that forces the reader to slow down and to maybe not take for granted that they understand what he's talking about, but to to spend more time with uh, with the text. And so I think mm -hmm. that's something that illustration can do is to 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 rethink the text or encourage the reader to rethink the text. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm so struck by one stylistic device that you also used in Heimat that you um, the text isn't uh, doesn't appear in print, but it's um, your handwriting, right? Am I correct? Uh, well, it's I'm faking it. I mean, with belonging, I actually handled it the entire book and then realized I will never do that again because it's a <laughs> 300 page book. Um, and whenever you make any edits, especially the way I arrange the text, I, I, I tend to arrange my pages in a composition that doesn't have leave any blank space unless mm. I want to evoke this, the feeling of, of bleakness or um, mm. silence or whatever, then then I use nothingness or blankness as a as a tool but mo for most of my images i arrange it in a way that there's no that there's no gaps so it's it's almost like a puzzle and then if you remove one sentence you have to rehand letter the entire page and of course it also involves a lot of copy editing rounds on the publisher's end which is puts just unnecessary stress on anybody involved in the process so i decided already with my foreign editions of belonging but also with all of the editions with on tyranny to uh, create a font that's based on my hand lettering mm -hmm. and to work with designers uh, in various countries to lay out the text of the book. I'm very lucky in that I work with a personal designer who's a friend of mine, um, Barbara Gizzi, who has a design studio called Raum Italic in Berlin. And she has been doing all of or most of my foreign editions of On Tyranny. So she uses my font and we collaborate and she inserts the text based on mm. how I imagine it. And so that, that saves me a lot of time. Yes, that, but the effect, I think, is, is for me, I'm, uh, you know, speaking as a reader of your work here, uh, the effect is the immediacy, which I really um, like because it pulls the text from this usual visual engagement that we have. You translate the, the, the printed font into meaning and words in our head into something that's more personal, um, that inserts you as graphic artist and, you know, arranger um, of the, of the contents. And um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about um, and, and to ask you about is um, the imagery of gardening and uh, horticulture or maybe uh, growing a civilization that you use as a structuring device, I think, in On Tyranny. What I liked was the table of contents. So basically for our listeners, On Tyranny has uh, 20 lessons from the 20th century. So it comes in short chapters and uh, the table of contents with page numbers for the lessons that are numbered one through 20 um, shows a flower, a pressed flower that uh, withers from uh, its original pressed uh, stage in chapters one and two through the um, palatal bone structure down to chapter 20. 
other mentions or other usages of also oxymoronic, I think, um, of flowers are um, the rose wallpaper in the opening, uh, which has uh, a ro well, looks like roses um, growing across a wall, like a wallpaper. But at the center of the roses, we have little skulls, symbols of uh, death. So um, maybe we can we can chat about that a little bit. Yeah, it's interesting that you point that out because uh, I haven't gotten that question specifically yet about the horticultural aspect of the book. Um, yeah, so as you mentioned, the chapter titles in the beginning of the book, they show flowers that I picked in my own backyard in Brooklyn from my hydrangea. And mm -hmm. basically what I wanted to show is, maybe it's obvious, uh, the, the, the decay, uh, an aspect of decay. So you see the purplish flower at the beginning and then you see mm. it fall apart bit by bit so I actually had to go through several seasons as I was working on this book and collect a different mm -hmm. uh, it's mm -hmm. not the same flower it's meant to look mm -hmm. like the same flower but I had to pick flower petals at different stages throughout mm. the season it does it, it looks like it's one flower so you're really collapsing the time yeah. into the skeleton yeah. yes and it, it actually an, uh, a more initial draft I had envisioned it the other way around which would be more help, mm. uh, ho hopeful to begin with a skeleton and then rebuild the flower but then I thought you know there's so much going on as you mentioned earlier so many shifts within Europe and the United States and other countries too not it's not only happening in the west um, towards uh, totalitarianism or uh, you know the extreme right And I wanted to begin with, you know, a, a reality check, basically. And so I decided to go from the beautiful flower to the skeleton. And you're asking about this, um, you know, plants uh, uh, as, a, as a tool, as a symbolic tool throughout the book. And I think the reason for why I chose it is because it shows a process, obviously. It shows a development uh, and a cycle, although it's very important to stress that Timothy Snyder, uh, I think, talks a lot about the fact that Uh, history is not cyclical, that we shouldn't understand it. It's something that repeats, uh, because yeah. if we do, we're stuck with a specific uh, pre-existing notion that then uh, disables us from actually taking action and feeling like we can change our governments. But but there is a certain uh, aspect of, of, of um, transitions and also uh, sneaking developments, you know, gradual mm. developments that we often overlook and that we do need to pay closer attention to. And, uh, you know, we are involved in these processes. We need to shape our countries. We need to shape our futures. And, you know, plants are a good symbol for that. Yeah. Um, obviously, one can also overuse that, uh, that image. So I did, um, I did use it both to show the growth and the decay and our, our active role in shaping that. Yes, And of course, I mean, we are gardeners uh, in that respect, uh, you know, symbolically, symbolic gardeners of our life, of the nation states that we live in, um, which is some, something else that struck me as an American study scholar. I always look for images of, of settler colonialism. And um, in the recommendations, you have a few reiterations. So if the recommendations come with center or maybe frontispieces pieces or plates for each chapter that, you know, show us an image, they show us the caption and the short version of the lesson. And then with number four, take responsibility for the face of the world. That's um, the lesson. We have the white farmer cutting a tree in the, um, you know, Western kind of logic. And the tree looks, it grows like a swastika. And um, the farmer cuts off the swastika shape and transforms it into something new. And then in um, 
chapters or lessons 19 and 20. Um, 19 is called Be a Patriot. We have a woman gardener, also looks like a woman of, of color who is growing things in an American desert landscape. It looks a little bit like, lots like uh, Monument Valley. So you have the, this Western uh, landscape representation, iconic Western landscape. And then in 20, be as courageous as you can. We had a bee, we have a beekeeper uh, who does get stung and who's already uh, covered all over in bee stings, but who still goes around cultivating the bees. So this gardening stewardship narrative, I think works really well because it links the responsibility that you're talking about to the earth also. I mean, there's also an ecological maybe um, uh, component in, in your visuals. Yeah, that's true. I've never thought about it like that. But yeah, I mean, plants are always, I think, also an expression of who we are as people. I mean, there are, um, you know, there are so many ways of growing a garden and it tells us a lot about the person who grows it, I think, or not growing a garden. I mean, some people just have pebbles and, you know, don't provide any living spaces for insects mm. or pollinators mm -hmm. that we, that we yeah, depend on. Yeah, in Germany, that's, that's a huge debate right now. People are prohibited from having pebble gardens outside their homes. That's, Understanding. Uh, Tyrannies that the Green Party is accused of <laughs> that they're telling the people how to actually cultivate their gardens. But it's important because in big cities, it contributes to air cooling, um, to have yeah. actual plants. So And the pollinators are, are important to our survival. Yes. Um, so anyway, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an important tool. But um, with the example you talked about earlier at the, the end papers of the book that show a rose wallpaper that have skulls in the middle, I try to hide the skulls a little bit. So at first glance, it looks like a beautiful Baroque, Baroqueish uh, wallpaper. And then only at second glance, you, you see that there are skulls. So it's also about our notion of beauty, but also our inability to see beyond propaganda sometimes. So, you know, flowery language. I mean, Timothy Snyder also writes about the power of language. And I personally also know and believe that language is also always the beginning of violence. I mean, you see that with the Nazi regime and also with some of the words that are being picked up again by uh, the RFD that you mentioned earlier. Certain expressions, you know, calling your political enemy a pig, for instance, that is something mm -hmm. that the Nazis did at the time and that it's consciously repeated now. You can do that with words. You can do that with images. Uh, you know, some of the propaganda art that the Nazis relied on was actually derived from medieval propaganda, anti-Semitic propaganda mm -hmm. art. So I think we need to be very, very aware of how language is used, how images are used, what they're insinuating, um, what they could lead to. I mean, when I was, I don't know about your experience, but when, when I was in high school, one thing that we did in German class was we, we took uh, Adolf Hitler's speeches and analyzed them. We, we dissected them. I mean, it was more mm -hmm. than an analysis, uh, word by word. And I feature one of the pages from my original ex school exercise book in my book, Belonging, where I show the actual piece of paper where I dissected one of those speeches. Uh, I understand now why it was so important, but every every word choice of his, the way that he repeated certain uh, images, the way that he used, you know, repetitions and 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 just invented new uh, uh, new words that didn't even exist, just for the power of of language and deception. And we should really be doing that today with mm -hmm, speeches mm -hmm, by Donald mm -hmm. Trump and, you know, contemporary presidents, because it's a very dangerous thing to do. Mm -hmm. 
I, I second that. As an American studies scholar, maybe I can just say that I think, you know, that's part of our work um, that needs to be done right now. So um, in my classroom, I teach populism at university and that's uh, we read and look out for these symbolisms. But I like this. I specifically like this linkage between the flowers of evil, maybe also in a, in a literary study sense, um, and the fact that you talk about the fact that we're groomed through language. And I have a very similar experience from yours. I was also raised in the West German, you know, um, 90s gymnasium educational, public educational background. And so so I, I had so many resonances uh, with your uh, writing about being, a, you know, a person in Germany, in West Germany in the 90s, and then traveling to the US, um, you know, as a student and engaging that international dialogue that you get into as a traveler, as a tourist, but also then as somebody who weirdly gets to be the face of Germany. I have a very similar experience. And so that's a good maybe segue to talk about um, your understanding of this responsibility that we um we maybe as 40-somethings have, but also um, that our transatlantic uh, engagement brings to be citizens of the world, to be respondents of uh, to a specific memory culture these days. So Belonging, Heimat, the second book, or it came first, you published it earlier, is a very personal visual memoir. And um, it's also called in German Ein Deutsches Familienalbum. And it links together this sentiment of, of trying to look for where we come from with the fact that often we don't know. Uh, and what struck me particularly was um, this clash between we have this institutional education. So we are taught things um, about the Holocaust, the Nazis, the power, but then we don't actually know what our forebears did and, and, and what they what they thought. Uh, and so your Heimat belonging, I read it as an, uh, you know, as an attempt to find your own position in this context, but also to re-engage with your family history. And um, you also did that through illustration, which worked so well. So I wanted to maybe ask you about your concept of memory and the archive in this context, because you also are a sleuth or detective in history in, in, in Heimat. How did that work out? Yes, I think the main aspect of the book is the idea of a search. And uh, what, it's a twofold search, really. One is the search for my German family uh, and what they did or didn't do under the Nazi regime, what their polit political positions were, because that's not something that we uh, that was talked about in my family, although I have to say the reason for why it wasn't talked about in uh, my family with my parents was because they didn't have any information. I mean, as you know, as a German, that generation, it was not a taboo to talk about our own families. I think at least in my family, the problem was that there wasn't enough information available mm -hmm. because my grandparents' generation were the ones who had not talked about it. And so um, uh, knowing that there was more information available, there were more technological tools available in my generation, but also, as you mentioned earlier, um, when you leave your home country and live abroad, you suddenly become the representative of that country where you come from. And you are seen not only as an individual, but you're seen as somebody who carries that country's culture and history within you, which mm -hmm. you do. I mean, we often don't realize that we do, but we physically carry that memory. And um, 
we have responsibility to confront it and to to keep it, you know, and to preserve it in a way. And so I only became aware of that responsibility when I left Germany and especially emigrating to a city that is very much influenced by, um, you know, G Jewish refugees who left Europe mm -hmm. uh, during that period. So I felt a very strong urge to confront that history anew. And as you just mentioned, the uh, the issue is that we learned a lot in Western Germany in school about the Holocaust, about the Nazis, but we didn't really talk about what happened in our own towns, in our own streets, in our own houses, in our own mm -hmm. families. And uh, only then, when I had left Germany, I realized that this was a big oversight and maybe a, a different form of a taboo because we had no problem talking about that time period, but we did never ask each other, what did your grandparents do? Yeah. And so I realized that there's a whole personal component that was missing, and that was part of the problem for why I personally felt a sense of um, paralysis. Uh, I felt, you know, that uh, what could I do about this? I felt guilty, and I was carrying this guilt around with me, but I didn't know how to constructively use that guilt and, and, and do something positive with that in a sense that you know you can apply it to the present tense and what what do we what can we do today to help you know for instance uh mexican children who are separated from their parents at the border i mean you mm -hmm. you, you can you can act as a foster parent you know you can do so many things in any country you live in and so i i think another big oversight was in the educational system at the at the time was that our our teachers never talked about uh, the emotions that all of this involved you know we yeah. went to concentration camp museums we looked at these terrible photographs and i think that was an important thing to do and i i mm -hmm. personally believe that should continue to be mandatory in german schools but then nobody engaged us in a conversation right after about how this made us feel and we were teenagers we were you know in in a period of our lives where we already, some of us going through some sort of identity crisis, asking a lot of questions about life. And then here we are seeing all these things, terrible things that our people had done. And nobody asked us, how does this make you feel? Are yeah. you sad? Are you angry? You know, and I think that was a huge oversight because it contributed to our feeling helpless basically and mm. um so my book was my book belonging was really an attempt of confronting that uh or to confronting my own feeling of paralysis not overcoming uh, the sense of guilt or feeling like oh you know once i've worked on this book i don't have to think about this any longer that was not the goal it was mm -hmm. really the goal was to to learn more uh to to learn to live with this feeling in a more constructive way and so research obviously was a, an important component uh, of that. You asked about the archives and my being a sleuth. I mean, I, I like, I really love uh, this kind of research mode where I feel like I'm kind of a, a hobby detective. And um, so my I research... I think a real detective also, not just a hobby detective. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like quite realistic, I think. Snooping around in other people's yeah. affairs. Um, and so the, the research took on many different forms. One was classic, um, you know, historical research, looking, rereading history and aspects of that history that I felt like I hadn't really read in school. Mm. Um, then going to archives to look for evidence, basically. I mean, a lot of this was looking for physical evidence of what my grandparents did or didn't do. So I went to state archives. I went to tiny village archives mm. in, the, in the towns where my uh, parents are, uh, grandparents grew up. 
I also want to emphasize for anybody out there who's interested in doing their own research, the, the files that you might want to be looking for are called Spruchkammerakten. Mm -hmm. And those are the files that uh, in the Western sectors of Germany, every German over the age of 18 had to fill out a 400 something, 400 uh, um, question questionnaire um, about what they did uh, under the Nazi regime. You know, did they buy real estate from a Jewish person? How much did they pay? <clears throat> did they underpay? Were they a member of the Nazi party? And um, you can now, these forms are now, uh, have now been made public and you can, you can go to any archive or state archive of the place where your relatives lived right after the war ended in 1945. And you can request those files even remotely. And yeah, so, so I did all this kind of archive uh, re research. And then I also went into the villages where my family came from and tried to find people who are still alive, who knew my relatives in person. Mm -hmm. So that was the third archival approach. And the fourth one, I would say, was going to flea markets across Germany to collect, again, um, physical evidence, but more, uh, you know, from, from other Germans, from Germans that I don't know. So letters from the front line, photo albums, other objects. For instance, I found um, a, a cigarette box that somebody, that a German prisoner of war had made out of what I was told, the scrap metal of a crashed airplane. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the, to me, these objects are silent witnesses of this time that is really uncomfortable to confront, especially in such a personal way, because, yeah. you know, you're holding somebody's letter in your hand and it might contain a lock of hair and you don't know what that person was up to or wasn't up to. I mean, it's 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 a very complex question to ask. Uh, was this person a Nazi? How do you define this term Nazi? And and you hold these objects in your hand and they make me uncomfortable, but I find that it's very, very important to collect them. Often they're collected by the wrong kind of people, you know, by right wing people all over the world who like mm. for them, you know, it's, it's memorabilia, they're fetishized. Exactly. Um, I think. Yeah. And so part of it for me is to take that that out of their hands um, and to um, to preserve these things and eventually donate them to archives. And they say something both individual, you know, they say something about the individual experience of living through that regime as a German, but they also say something about the collective experience. And mm -hmm. I like that the, these objects contain both aspects of our memory. Mm -hmm. And so I often integrate them into my books as well as, as pieces of evidence that, that hopefully give the reader a more personal uh, entry point into what it was like to live through that regime. It certainly does. It certainly did for me. <laughs> uh, maybe I can just say that. I also went and in, in, in inquired into the Spruchkammerakten by my grandpa, grandfathers and, uh, you know, inspired by your own research. And uh, I had a experience that maybe resonated what I what I got from Heimat because I I eventually received the Spruchkammerakten and I was very excited and it was online. So I had a PDF and I opened the PDF and I was um, so excited too see but also wary and uh yeah very mixed feelings very emotional response and i found out that uh, one of my granddads was a member of the party and it said he's he apparently joined the party in 37 and there's a anecdote in my family that he was uh, blackmailed into joining <clears throat> so there's a you know an explanation narrative in my family um so i heard that too from my aunt 
and interestingly enough, I saw I saw that he joined. I saw, you know, this was before the categorization into the five theta categories and in into the five categories of uh, participation happened. So it was quite early as a, a document. But at the end of the day, I also had this engagement and estrangement experience where I thought, okay, I apparently he was blackmailed. He joined. He still joined in 1937. Do I know what he felt? No. Do I know if he was, you know, if he ascribed into uh, 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 inscribed into uh, not national national socialism? No. I still, you know, I had an approach. I had the document in front of me. I had the family lore in the back of my head, but I still had this estrangement notion. And um, I think that's something that we also have to live with because it does inform our our present in this way. It does shape who we are, as you said in the opening, it does shape who uh, we are in the present moment. Uh, but it's important to carry it into the future and say, okay, this is what we know, what we don't know. And then this is what we stand for. This is our responsibility in the now. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, I, I think that's also exactly what uh, our generation's goal is. Um, I mean, ideally, as opposed to our parents. I think for mm -hmm. our parents, it was a mostly confrontational perspective. You know, they accused, rightfully so, their parents' generation uh, for all that had happened. But uh, again, my sense is that it was more of a collective accusation. Um, mm. And in our generation, we are more removed. We grew up knowing our grandparents before we knew about the Holocaust. We had often, you know, loving relationships to our grandparents. I mean, my relationship happened to have been very distant. But um, and then, uh, you know, because of the distanced viewpoint, we also have the privilege to To, to, to ask more individual questions, I think, and yeah. to ask, as you just pointed out, how does this all impact us? Because I think that's something that my our parents' generation didn't talk as much about or think as much about, you know, what, what does this mean for me now? And how can we apply this to the present? How can we um, carry this memory forward, even if it's an uncomfortable memory? Because I do think that the German narrative is very important as a narrative. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's still often overlooked, especially abroad. Not many people know what that experience was like for Germans. I mean, the way that we hear about it is always either uh, from the point of view of ma major war criminals or resistance fighters or victims, but we don't really pay enough attention to the big mass of people who just went along with the regime. And this is exactly the group that we need to pay closer attention to if we want to learn something about tyrannical regimes and how they can be sustained. And uh, what you also said about these family laws or, or, or fairy tales that we're being told, that's another whole important aspect is that in, in any country you grew up with, you often rely, you know, we, we our se sense of identity is so much shaped by where we came from and, and who our families were. And we tend to just uh, accept these narratives that we're being fed. And it's, it's always funny to me living in America because I've lived there for 20 years. And when I'm uh, with my family and some, or, or also with friends and sometimes the, you know, on Veterans Day, you, you just hear people talk about, oh yeah, my father fought and, and my grandfather fought in the second world war. And then The reaction is always very, you know, full of admiration. Wow, what did he do? And, you know, I sit there as a mm -hmm. German and I just feel like, well, my grandfather was also in the Second World War. And, well, um, on the other I, side, yeah. Yeah, and, and then I feel like, well, but do you actually know, you know, what, what you, you know, why do people 
immediately assumed that that was such a grand thing. I mean, of course, they were on the on the right side, obviously, and they were part of the, the, the liberation. And without them, we wouldn't be where we are now as Germans. But still, you know, especially around the subject of slavery, too. I mean, how many Americans actually go to archives to find out if their family uh, once owned slaves or think about what their responsibility is today? Uh, mm-hmm. Often there's also this divisive question of uh, North versus South. You know, because, just because your family grew up in New England doesn't mean that there was no connection to slavery. Um, you know, yeah. we, we Germany profited from slavery even though we didn't have slaves. Liverpool was one of the biggest harbors that you know, that, you know, was in, in, involved in the slave trade. So, but then how many people actually? take the responsibility individual responsibility i mean in america the problem is that not even collectively is the subject addressed adequately enough you know in schools or by institutions but then on a personal level it's probably not addressed at all i mean maybe there are some individuals who who are addressing it but we should all be going to archives and we should all be asking but you know i'm not saying this in a, in a, in, a, in a sense of or oh, we should all feel feel guilty because i think guilt doesn't get us very far and the extreme right often uses guilt as an excuse to then say, oh, why should we always feel guilty? Why do we have to still talk about these things? So guilt mm-hmm. can also lead into different dangerous pathways, but just as a sense of um, agency, you know, why not find out what happened in my family? Why not become part of a bigger dialogue? And, you know, I can still embrace my family. I can still embrace my culture, even if I find out about those dark sides it's not a shouldn't be seen as a contradiction it's just part of who we are and mm-hmm. i think we can we can commit to that yeah i agree and um specifically i think when we look at the german slash transatlantic or american relationship um i think it's important to note that we have the privilege of having all those archives and uh, most of us know where we are from we know our parents we know our grandparents so we haven't been most of us haven't been displaced um as uh, people in the global diaspora people of color so uh, with that knowledge with that accessibility of the archive i think comes a specific responsibility also to dive into it and you know to find out because uh, lots of our memories aren't shaped by trauma and by, uh, you know, things that are um, forgotten, we are able to uncover it. And um, the one thing that I also learned a lot from in the last year, as I did your reading of Heimat as a, you know, American study scholar from Germany, who is very inclined to all those transatlantic discourses, that's why I'm talking about it on the podcast, um, is uh, Susan Nyman's learning from the German learning from the Germans, confronting race and the memory of evil. She um, is a philosopher, um, a white Jewish woman who grew up in the American South and uh, who has been living in Berlin for some 30 years. And she basically studies German memory culture and engages just that responsibility and, you know, tries to mirror it back onto um, U.S. uh, dealings and reckonings with histories of racism, structural inequalities and black liberation. And um, she has a thing um, to say about the workings of shame. So I think, you know, the the connection here, when you talk about guilt and what it does and what it doesn't do for us, um, she also has a thing where she talks about shame. Because, of course, this memory of this evil history is going to be related to the question of perpetrator and victim. And um, as we deal with our own individual forebears, you know, were they Nazis? Were they no Nazis? How, how did they join? Did they join? What did they think? And ultimately, maybe not knowing everything that we can know 
or just having to imagine, this is linked to shame or guilt. And on the one hand, my personal experience was uh, going to the U.S., I was overwhelmed with all the national flags, the pride, the body discipline of pe pledging allegiance on a daily basis in the public school system. That's something that I found so strange because um, I had a very difficult and different relationship to the nation state and to displays of German nationalism because of uh, being a product of the public and, you know, education system. But this shame or guilt eventually transformed into um, sitting Sarah Ahmed calls us sitting with the trouble in a, in a feminist context, but I think this works well here too. So this guilt or shame has a function and the function is to, you know, make us maybe wary of abusive language, uh, of the excessive troping of uh, others as animals or as uh, perpetrators or as threats. Of um, It makes us better stewards, I think, of public discourse And maybe also defenders of, you know, citizenship roles of democracy and of um, the rights of really debate. So for me, in my 20s, I was really plagued by this as a student in the US and going back and forth. And I was at the same time so taken aback by the excessive celebration of national symbols that you get in the US and by the growing rift. And I mean, we, we see them you know, paraded right now um, in a way with the rise of populism and the Tea Party, that is really scary, but that makes it even more important to say, if you have an archive, you can go to the archive. If you have engaged these memories and you feel the guilt, take the guilt and transform it into something that is productive. And uh, Nyman says that hope at the same time as guilt is felt, hope is a duty. So we can feel the guilt, and she writes this in the 2020 afterward to her book, Under the Impressions of Ferguson and the Police Killings and uh, Civil Unrest in the United States. So she says hope is a duty, and we have to keep the affections going, and we have to transform them into rational and reasonable action and just not, not leave the playing field to populists who motivate emotions and sentiments as well. So um, this is a very powerful moment, I think, to be looking more closely into the resources that we have available as Germans <laughs> and the practices uh, of uh, German memory culture. Um, Nyman calls this Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung, a working through, where she actually translates it as working off the past. And that's where I kind of disagree. I don't think you can work it off. You know, it's not like excessive weight that you can shed at some time, <laughs> like what you talked about earlier. I think it's, um, I, I prefer the term uh, Vergangenheitsbewältigung as in reckoning with it and coming to terms and then transforming it into something that, you know, can shape our future, you know, defines us in the, in the present moment. It's a very important book, I think, and it shows again how important it is that, uh, you know, those, those voices of people who leave their familiar environments and then uh, emigrate elsewhere and just have a very different perspective and are able to shed light on where they come from um, in a new way that uh, we can all learn from. I mean, I, I personally feel like the term Vergangenheitsbewältigung is also really tricky because to me it implies that you can come to terms with it and I don't know if that is at least for me the case. 
And I don't think that we have to ever feel like we have come to terms with it. I think embracing uh, the confrontation with the past as a process rather than as something that can never be completed is actually an important aspect in this because I think that we uh, we can never take democracy for granted and we should always see it as a work in progress. And um, yeah, so that's 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 my issue I have with the term Vergangenheitsbewältigung. So I, mm-hmm. li- I like her little tweak on that. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's 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 great to have people like her also coming from the outside and, and reflecting on what our role is as, as Germans. I think it should be able to be a dialogue that expands beyond our borders. That is very true. I wanted to also um, inform our listeners uh, about your next project that is coming out in the fall and in February then in Germany, which is a very contemporary uh, project, but which, you know, is informed by the memory culture and the engagement in the contemporary moment. It's called Diaries of War, two visual accounts from Ukraine and Russia. The German title will be Im Krieg. Yeah, it's a... Uh, a piece of visual journalism, basically. It's the first time that I've been doing that. I'm I'm doing work on a contemporary war. So for one year since the first week of Russia's unprovoked and aggressive attack on Ukraine, or renewed attack, since you know we've been dealing with the Donbas situation for a while, it's uh, I've been interviewing a Ukrainian but Russian-born journalist who um, lives in in in, in Kiev and the Russian artist who lived in St. Petersburg to show their very contrasting experiences of the war. And it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a document. So it's a, it's a piece of visual journalism that uh, every week I, I ask them questions about their experiences and, uh, and then illustrated their, their accounts, but in a very abstracted way. And it was published in various newspapers Uh, the main newspaper was the LA Times for a year. And it's, as you said, it's coming out in book form in the US in the fall and uh, in Germany in February next year. And I am very excited and looking forward to it. Thank you, Nora Krug, for coming to this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.